Good morning, everyone. My name is Madeline, and I'll be doing the Bible reading this morning. So we're reading from two chapters in Numbers. The first one is chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then it will be 40 to 54. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. From the descendants of Asher, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Asher was 41,500. From the descendants of Naphtali, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Naphtali was 53,400. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. The ancestral tribe of the Levites, however, was not counted along with the others. The Lord had said to Moses, You must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant law over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. And whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp under their standard. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the law of the tabernacle of the covenant law. The Israelites did all this just as the Lord commanded Moses. The next chapter is chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. 
When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and would not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. So it's been one year since God's people left Egypt as slaves and they've been living at Mount Sinai for that whole time. And during that one year stay, Moses received instructions from God as to how to live as God's holy people. That's the book of Leviticus. We preached through that last year if you were here. It told of how to approach a holy God and enjoy the blessing of belonging to him. Now, the next part is God leading his people into his land so that they can become a blessing to the other nations by mediating God to everyone else. They're going to be a kingdom of holy people, but they're not here yet. And so Numbers comes in and describes the journey, you can see on the screen, of going from Mount Sinai at the bottom all the way into this new land. And it should take about 10 days to get there, not too long. And Kadesh Berea is the beginning of the land that God's giving them. But as we're going to find out, and as was alluded to, it's going to take 40 years to make that journey. And so the story of Numbers describes to us this not-yet-home, living in the wilderness, already saved by God's grace, not-yet-fully-living-in-the-reality-of-that journey. Verse 1 tells us that they're in the desert or the wilderness, as some translations call it, of Sinai. And their speaking present God from the tent of meeting now prepares them for this journey ahead of them. Now, the wilderness is the Bible's nowhere place. You don't live here. You don't flourish here. You pass through on your way to something better, like going from Port Augusta to the Flinders. There's just nothing Deadness everywhere. Which means Numbers is a book about movement. You don't want to stay here, you want to get on to the next one. But it's not really about geographical movement. Because the book actually starts and finishes in the wilderness. It's a circular narrative. And while there are towns along the way, it's actually more spiritual than geographical. You can see in the diagram the decline of God's people in the wilderness. It's really about two generations. And the first 25 chapters tell of the first generation who came out of Egypt. But it also tells of their unfaithful, grumbling hearts. The rebellion against God, which leads to them all dying out over 40 years. Chapters 26 onwards tell the story of the second generation. How they bounce back from that pattern. And the book ends with five faithful women who are a picture of a new generation's faith, filled with confidence and assurance that God will give them all he has promised them. 
And so to prepare his people for this journey, the wilderness wanderings, God speaks to them in the first 10 chapters, and he says to them, Numbers 1.1. It's one of the key phrases in the entire book. It appears 45 times, actually. Sometimes it comes with a warning, or a call to repentance, or about God showing grace, or God leading his people onwards. What's clear is that in verse 1 of Numbers, God is going to accompany his people on their wilderness journey into the promised land. And this should sound really familiar to us today when we think about it. I mean, we live between our salvation accomplished, Jesus died, he rose, he's accomplished it for us, but our salvation is not yet completed and will not happen until he returns. We live in the wilderness. Adelaide is not our home. What's more, our experience in the wilderness is just like their experience too. Wars, sickness, broken relationships, distrust, pain, unfaithful hearts. Are they not part of our wilderness wanderings as well? And just as God promised to be in the midst of them in the tent of meeting, we're reminded too that Jesus promises to be with us in the wilderness as well. Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, Jesus said, to the end of the age. Moreover, Numbers also confronts us with what it means to live by faith in this journey of life. God wants to orientate them to Him so that they don't lose the big picture of what He's up to and where they're going. And we'll see that the first generation didn't believe God's promises. They died in the wilderness. The second generation lived by faith, had a new start, learnt from the past. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we too learn from their example in a negative way. So Numbers challenges us to consider what would your life look like to live as the pilgrim that you are. To live by faith, assured of God's presence, knowing the best is yet to come, our future secure because of Jesus, because God is faithful to himself. But God doesn't treat us like a cake in the oven either. You know, put together in Jesus, left on your own to bake until it's ready and off you go. God's grace is seen in getting them ready for the journey. And this is Numbers 1 to 10. And the big idea is that God gives them himself. We're going to see how he provides in two ways. The first way that God provides is to count his people. In verse 2, God says, take a census of the whole community by their clans and families. Count them all. And then we go on and we have for that chapter the numbers and the lists from the descendants of Asher, there's 41,500, and, and from Nephali, 53,400, and then the total number at the end of verse 46 was 603,550. And of course, numbers is full of numbers, and I would suspect that that's not the most exciting daily Bible reading you've ever had. In fact, some versions of the Bible that we have don't even translate most of Numbers chapter 7 because it's so repetitive in the numbers. It has a footnote. But the problem isn't the lists. It's just we don't see their relevance necessarily. But every one of us has some sort of numbers that resonate with us. Do you follow footy stats? Can you tell me who won every grand final, the year, the points? My nephew can and he's five. It's It's mental. Do you watch the ASX and track the price of gold and anticipate what Elon Musk will buy next? 
Are you anticipating a reserve bank rate rise? One economist I read this week says 50 basis points before the election. As a nurse, if you checked my blood pressure and saw 120 over 80, you'd be pretty happy with those numbers. You might like to record my bowel movements and if I drank water every day. As a teacher, you know the grade bands, what students must do to push that number up. Towards the end of the year, you live in a world of numbers and stats, helping kids get that little bit higher. Or each day, I'll look at the COVID numbers and see if we're tracking up and down what the infection rate is. Or what about this, when you hear the birth of a new baby? And there's lots of new babies here in church, and, and often I'll hear of that from someone, and the message will be, we've had a baby. And I'll say, Natasha, they've had a baby. And she'll say, oh, what was the name? What was the weight? What's the size? How's mum? Are they healthy? Hair colour, hair? And I just go, oh, I don't know. And she'll say, did you ask those questions? And I say, no, they had a baby. And numbers mean something, right? Some stats we get behind. And when we see the reason for all of this is in verse 3, with the, it's a military census for the army, it reminds us here that the journey into this land that God is going to give them isn't going to be easy. They need protection from the other nations who will be against them. Ironically, it turns out the protection they need most, though, is from themselves. And so they count the army, and all men, 20 years over, are serving. But the census does something else, too. This census and the other ones that are taken in the first 10 chapters, they show who's counted in. Who's committed? A census asks the question, are you in or are you out? And as we learn in chapter 3, verse 1, this is a family record, which tribe they identify with. You see, God is giving them family groups for protection for the journey ahead of them. And belonging to these groups was the security they needed to get the inheritance. Every clan will have a divided portion of the land. They had to belong to receive it. But not everyone's counted the same way, are they? And we saw that with the, the, the all-ages talk and our little Levite here, who was um, the Levite moving the tabernacle around. The ancestral tribe of the Levites was not counted among the others. And the verses go on to tell us that whenever the tabernacle's to move, the Levites have to take it down. Whether the tabernacle is set up, they, they do it. But anyone who approaches it should be put to death. The Israelites had to set up the tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp, under their own standards. And then it finishes by saying they did just as the Lord commanded Moses. One of the striking features of these ten chapters at the beginning is everyone has a place. Read on and you'll find out what to do with a one-month-old child. Keep reading, you'll find out what to do when you hit retirement age, or how old you have to be to serve in the temple, or the tabernacle, sorry. And here we meet Levi, the tribe, and none of them are to fight. Their job is to lead the people to God and transport his meeting place as they journey on. And as you read that, two warnings jump out at us. It's a confronting reminder here that they live and travel with a holy God. God's holiness is not something that humanity, even God's people, can rule over or command or order. Don't forget God's holiness in the wilderness. Chapter 5 gives us more details of how they need to be a community where God can reside. And that means Levi's set apart to make sure they have access to God appropriately. It's not that getting too close to God and his wrath falling on him in verse 49 or 
them dying in verse 53 is because God is evil. It's the opposite, actually. The closer you get to God's holiness, the so good and right is He, the more our own blemishes are exposed. Moreover, we can't approach God unless those blemishes and faults that we have are removed. And so the Levites are set up to mediate and show how do we remove the stain of sin upon us. They ensure that access is not restricted, but it's also not free, which is why no unauthorized person can come near, you see. And why they have to camp, in verse 53, around to make sure God's holiness doesn't break out against them. They're the mediating tribe. And if you turn to chapter 2, and we've seen this diagram before this morning, you'll learn that they were to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance, each under their standing banner of their families. Two things. There is separation, but God's located at the center of their lives, isn't he? They're arranged around God. They're a nation completely orientated towards God in all they do, a God-centered community with God at the heart. See, God's preparing them to travel, providing for them in the wilderness. And right here, he makes sure they have protection in family groups and they're always orientated to him. That's how they're going to survive the wilderness journey. And the same can be said of us. God gives us a tribe, so to speak, to be counted in, to belong to. It's called the church, the people of God, right? And part of belonging is so that on the road of life with all the bumps and all the twists, we can keep orientating each other to Jesus. Hebrews 10.25 says we encourage one another to promote love and good works as we journey on to a heavenly dwelling. God provides for them. But the biggest provision is not just the tabernacle and the camp and the army. The biggest provision is actually in chapter 9. It's God's provision of himself. On the day the tabernacle was set, the cloud covered it. They obeyed, and whenever, sorry, whenever God moved, they would move. Whenever God stayed, they would stay. It's a very repetitive few verses. I remember my first ever camping trip with Natasha. We were one year into our marriage. We bought a tent with her extended family and went away over Easter. And next to us was her uncle, a veteran of 40 years of camping. Now, I remember that weekend that I would frequently go to his campsite and ask for things. Toaster, hammer, matches sauce. And that camping trip taught me two things. One, I don't much like camping, but two, we need to prepare better when we go away. And preparing well is all about numbers one to ten, how God's people journey on with God. And as we've just read, the provision they need is God himself. The cloud that came out of Egypt settled on the mountain when God, when Moses got the Ten Commands, moves over into their presence in the tent of meeting. God's holy, visible, powerful presence right there, making a home in the middle of them. And we learn how they navigate life with God's presence too. At the Lord's command, it says, they come and they go. The great stress on when to stay and go is all directed by God. God is leading and guiding in the wilderness. The timing of what happens in your life, in their life, when to stay, when to go, directed by God. One day, one month, anything in between, 
The repeated phrase, at the Lord's command, reminds them, Gog will move you on when he's ready. Everything's to be done at the Lord's command. That's the idea. But waiting isn't doing nothing either. Verse 19, the community carried out all the Lord required. That means they waited while living a holy life, orientated towards God himself. They looked forward to the future inheritance. They let the future dictate their lives. And as they moved on as holy people, following God every step. Which is a reminder, it's a journey. They're not home yet. They travel with God at his command as his holy people. And if they're responsive to God, they will make it home. And even if the journey is full of unknowns, even if it'll be hard and tough, I mean, we just had a sense about the army, that clues them in, there might be some trouble coming our way. What they can't miss, scratch that, what they do miss is that their God is very known and very present. The tabernacle is at the center, ensuring everyone is focused towards God's presence. They face the wilderness, everything that comes at them because it's to be done at God's command, with his presence leading them, going before them and with them. And that is the key of how they're going to survive the wilderness. And that's exactly how the passage is so helpful today. We too are the wandering people of God, There is hostility and challenges and struggles, but we don't do it alone. And we don't live in the time of numbers either, because God has kept moving and leading and speaking. And we journey onwards now, not following a cloud, but following Jesus. We journey on, not with the presence of God in a tent, but the Holy Spirit in us. We journey on with the confidence that here and now isn't our home. That God has prepared an eternal, renewed creation to live with him in. And we journey on obeying the very presence of our God. Which means, to summarize, the, the provision for God today begins by knowing that God is with us. In Numbers, you live with God's presence at a distance. But in Jesus, we see that God's presence wouldn't be confined to a tent, but would come out of the tabernacle come out of the heavenly tabernacle, actually, that God would walk out and he would become human and dwell amongst his people. God is now personable and human and visible and relatable, and that's Jesus, who John 1.14 says, he made his dwelling, or literally tabernacled, it pulls on the language of numbers here, among us. And as the glory hovered above the tent, we have seen God's glory, the glory of the Father, through Jesus. This means the way that we endure the road of life is knowing that God's presence is with us. How? Well, Jesus came to redeem us into his family to count us as one with him. No more separation or fear of falling dead at a holy God because Jesus is the perfect mediator, taking on all the uncleanness of his people to put us under his banner, to give the Spirit as the guarantee that God is with us for the wilderness of life. And then as the story progresses from John, you get to Acts, and you see God's fire appearing again in Acts 2. But where does it appear this time? Over the apostles. The same Spirit of fire rests and settles over each of God's people as a flame, recalling us back to Numbers. It means God's presence is personable and relatable. 
It means that God's presence is there with you as you raise your children or talk with your wife or navigate the workplace or face surgery. What is going to get you through? And not just by the skin of your teeth, mind you, but with perspective and hope and certainty is God's presence with us, inwardly leading us. Because so often what you and me need in life is actually to be reorientated to God once more. Because what will survive, how we'll survive the wilderness is His presence with us. And you see, the Holy Spirit becomes to us at that moment a bit like an interior designer. The Spirit's in us, and the Spirit starts to move the furniture around and replace the furniture and put new furniture in of desires and ambitions. And He does that for the journey onwards. He does that for holiness. He does that to orientate us to God more and more. When you start to pray things like, Lord, make me holy, God will often put you in very unholy situations. When you say, Lord, I want to be faithful and patient in life, God will not do that in in an easy way necessarily, but he'll often give you moments in which you have to show patience and faithfulness. When you say, God, I want to be more like Jesus, God will give you situations which will push and stretch you to be more like Jesus. But his presence is with us to orientate ourselves to him and we live as his people journeying on one day at a time. Which means the hope you need this week is the assurance of God's presence. Will you daily orientate yourself to him? Be assured that he is with you. And will you echo God's people in chapter 9 that say, at the Lord's command, I will live, I will follow. So let's order our life under God then, geared towards holiness, reminded that his presence is with us in the wilderness of life, every step of the way. And that's what Numbers 1 to 10 is all about. Let's pray, let's sing, And go into our week with the assurance that because of Jesus, God is with you. Let's pray. Our holy God, you don't just dwell away from us, but in us. Through Jesus, your Son, who came out of the heavenly dwelling place and became a man, took upon all our uncleanness and died our death, so that we can now be brought under your banner, in your clan, in your tribe, leading on for the rest of our days, awaiting fully accomplished salvation. So, so Lord, give us that perspective as we face all the difficulties of this week, knowing that you're with us and you want to make us holy. We praise you and thank you, Jesus. Amen.